Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. We're breaking up How Story Works into four seasons following four topics, character, conflict, structure, and magic. This is season one, character. Today on How Story Works, we are wrapping up our discussion of character with our season finale answering your questions. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. Dr. Jones, here we are at the end of season one of How Story Works Conversations, in which we talked about character. And the thing that I have learned from you as a learning specialist is that in order to learn something, you have to learn it and then process it and then repeat it and kind of reinforce it, right? Yep. Okay. So we have a section of reinforced learning from this season. What have you learned? (laughs) So this was fun because I went back and kind of put together a summary. And I was like, oh, wow, because the episodes feel and I guess like during this pandemic world on fire, Mm -hmm. it feels like we did season one for both like a week and also like a year. Right. Um, (laughs) Time has no meaning anymore. It just it's just meaningless. Um, And we had such great interviews and, you know, fun with fix it. But it was really good to just kind of go back to the core content and be like, oh, yeah, like I learned a lot that I can sort of summarize and articulate for myself now, Mm -hmm. which is just really, really helpful. Um, So I think we'll just kind of start at the beginning. Uh, And these are just my summary. And anyone listening, if you want to write your own, of course, that will vary because Mm -hmm. different things will stick to your brain than stuck to my brain. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know like the the definition we're working with here for story as an event or series of events versus narrative where that becomes a recounted event or series of events structured to evoke a particular meaning or experience. Mm -hmm. And I like that because it gives intentionality to narrative. Yes. Because Mm -hmm. stories are going to happen, you know, but, but the things that we choose to tell and the things that we choose to share have that intentionality of narrative, which Mm -hmm. I really like. So even though we use the words interchangeably, when we say story on the show, we mean narrative. Mm -hmm. Generally, unless we're talking specifically about, yeah, but I mean, they do end up getting used interchangeably. And I think that what's really important is that you understand what parts of your story are story and what parts of your story are narrative. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that the kind of pieces of narrative, right, the craft that a writer can work with is character, structure, conflict, theme, pacing, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then the magic that right. just it makes, you know, your work uniquely yours mm-hmm. because of the magic that that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those elements are what make narrative transport possible. And that transportation for the reader into the world of story is really your, your ultimate goal. As a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And a writer is anyone who creates a narrative. Narratives can be built in many forms. So that mode through which the writer is working, novels, screenplays, video games, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Form is the delivery mechanism for a narrative. And a reader is anyone who engages with that narrative. Yes. Which is pretty cool. Um, (laughs) And then a character is any living entity with sentience and agency in a story. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be human. But any character that can think, feel, and act are coded as human because they're stand-ins for us, right? They're the vehicles or the mirror for the human experience, Yes, which I like. Um, And then we have the character triangle for building Mm -hmm. good characters or relatable characters, I should say. So they have strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. And the strengths are the things your character does well or positive qualities that they have. Mm -hmm. Weaknesses are things your character can't do well or the negative qualities that they have. And vulnerabilities are things that can hurt your characters. Mm -hmm. And the sources of vulnerability are the fills. We have fear, identity, love, and shame, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really cool. So it's, and it's, I have enjoyed applying that. Like when I'm watching a show now or reading a book, I'm like, okay, okay, what's the vulnerability? Like, what is it? (laughs) And it's (laughs) because the vulnerability, honestly, is like the key to everything. Like, that's what connects, that's what connects us to each other. And Mm -hmm. that's what connects us to the characters and makes us feel them as real. Right. Right. Because it gives you something to care about, right? Like, caring about a character is different than rooting for that character. So you can care Mm -hmm. about a villain or you can care about a character that you don't necessarily like which is, mm-hmm. you know, really Or fun. want to win, exactly. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, naming characters is very important. So you mm-hmm. want to put some intentionality in there. And, you know, it's one of those opportunities that you call doing two things at once. 
Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can you can add description or personality or something into a name for a character. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest things I learned from you, because I struggle with writing because I start with scenarios or ideas and not characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one way to get started is just to put somebody you know in your story. So yes. it can be like someone from your actual life or a character that you already love, put them in, adapt them to your story and make them your own. Um, and that sounds like such a simple idea, but it's been incredibly helpful for me. Oh, good. As, especially thinking about like how, what is it you love about that character? And then how would you personalize that, customize that and change that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for your story, which is really cool. Uh, and then we have the roles that characters play in stories. We have the protagonist, the antagonist, and supporting characters. Mm-hmm. Protagonist and antagonist are not the same things as heroes and villains. Um, <laughs> Very good. So, yes. Yes. But we know that, it, that a character is the protagonist if they meet three criteria. So mm-hmm. they're a point of view character, which means we see the story through their perspective. They are in active pursuit of a goal that moves the story forward. Mm -hmm. And they have the most at stake if the story is, you know, if the battle is lost. They have the most at stake Mm -hmm. in the story. So they carry the weight of the story and the reader rides through the story on their back. So they need to be compelling, Mm -hmm. but they don't need to be likable. Yes. Which is, again, where that vulnerability comes into play. Mm -hmm. Right. Meanwhile, the antagonist has one job. One job. They just have to block the antagonist. So yeah. Which they have makes to so much fun to write. So great. So mm-hmm. they have to want things that are mutually exclusive. So mm-hmm. protagonist yes. has to want this. And if the antagonist gets it, the protagonist can't have it. So like you have mm-hmm. to have kind of that conflict lock um, right. with them. Um, so there's a lot more, I think, freedom and flexibility to write yes. a really good antagonist. Which is but why you, they're so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> but you still want them mm-hmm. to be relatable, you know, yes. so they still need vulnerabilities, too. Mm-hmm. And then the supporting characters really fill out the community. Mm-hmm. So you have the protagonist's friends and love interests and families and colleagues. But those characters don't exist solely to shine light right. on the protagonist mm-hmm. right they're still the heroes of their own stories they have their own lives um and so and i kind of like thinking about that that like every character in a story could also be the protagonist of a different story yes so like you and don't want to right, you don't right. create a character solely to support you know, Mm -hmm. your protagonist. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we did, we talked a lot about archetypes and stereotypes, you know, Mm -hmm. for building characters and and for writing. So, you know, your archetypes are really based on more universal character models, and it Mm -hmm. they have a narrative purpose, a mentor, a trickster, a villain, whereas stereotypes are just socially conforming patterns. They're very shallow overgeneralizations, Mm -hmm. right? The, The perky cheerleader, the dumb jock like that so mm-hmm. we want to write toward archetypes and not stereotypes right although the wine mom stereotype i have to say is something with which i identify quite a bit <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying sometimes a stereotype hits a little close to home <laughs> but that's not all you are that's not all i am no i'm all just i'm are. just making a joke and i'm not defending stereotypes <laughs> um so then once we kind of get a sense of, of who these characters are, they, they're going to live the story and readers learn who they are by watching what they do and what they say. So in story and narrative, dialogue is actually action because mm-hmm. it's, it's part of what your character does, right? What they say yes. is part of who they are and how they say it really shows who they are as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a lot about believable versus realistic fiction. Yes. We don't want to transcribe the way humans actually talk. Nope. But we do want to be realistic um, and, and make that still have the prose and the tone and the rhythm that you're looking yeah. for, mm-hmm. you know, in your story. Um, and then we talked about character breaks and character arcs, mm-hmm. which I liked. Um, so the character arc is the way a character changes throughout the course of a story. And that that conflict, whatever's driving the story, is what makes them take action, what makes mm-hmm. them change. Yes. And not every character has to arc. Mm-hmm. Um, but a character break is when a character does or says something completely out of character, usually just for the sake of a joke or mm-hmm. to like squeeze in a plot line that doesn't fit mm-hmm. and then comes right back with no explanation or change or nothing. So mm-hmm. 
I think it's it was very helpful to really be able to, to define each of those things mm-hmm. um, for me. And then, of course, the biggest lesson from season one is that the best way to write distinctive characters is to see them as fully human and to love them as people, mm-hmm. including their flaws and their quirks and their strengths and their weaknesses, because they all are the hero of their own story. And your job as a writer is to love them as people and never diminish their humanity. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, amazing. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited that that all got across and that uh, and that I was able to make that clear. Um, and thank you so much for your help in helping me figure out how to teach this appropriately and in a way that's actually helpful to people. Um, I've learned so much from working with you that I'm going to be bringing into my, my classes and into the book I'm working on. So I just want to say thank you so much for all of your guidance on these things. I really appreciate you helping me. And one of the best things I ever learned from Dr. Kelly Jones. And this started back in the first podcast we ever did together, which was Big Strong Yes, which was define your goddamn terms, right? (laughs) I would use these terms and I'd be like, everybody knows what I mean, when sometimes I wasn't even entirely specific about what I meant. And that has been so incredibly valuable. So for people out there looking to learn anything or to teach anything, always do, you know, listen to Dr. Kelly Jones, look at the terms (laughs) and be sure that you understand what they mean. And if they don't, if you don't understand them, ask. Yes. You know, require that of anybody teaching you anything. So I loved that. And it's been so wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And I love going through this with you because you know so much. And I love any writing question I ask. You're like, oh, yeah, here you go. (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's 17 years of hard earned doing nothing else. So I'm No, it's great. And I'm really looking forward to the next season, too, because I have a lot to learn Mm -hmm. about structure and conflict. hard, yeah. And a whole lot to learn about magic. So (laughs) I'm very excited for all of these discussions that we're going to have. It's so, so much fun. And I couldn't possibly have a better person to go on this journey with. So thank you so much. Thank Thank you you so much. You are brilliant. Um, All right. So we uh, put out a call for questions. Mm -hmm. Um, and the funny thing was we got one, right? right? (laughs) Which is not usually the case, but I understand it because as we record this, you know, the world is on fire and pardon me for saying so it sucks, but it is a necessary moment. I think, uh, it would have been real nice if we had listened and, and acknowledged our problems before all of this happened. Um, and I, I'm so sorry that we did not. But fire brings destruction. And there are some things in our culture that need to be destroyed and looked at very seriously. I, um, it's horrible that people are getting hurt. But people have always been getting hurt by these things in our culture. This is no different you know, now from how it's been. But now people care enough. There is enough collective will to start doing something something about it, which I am, I am bright sidey. I have to look, I have to look at the bright side of it. And the bright side of it is that maybe now it'll stop, you know? Um, And that is on many, many fronts. Uh, Right now, as we record this, uh, Black Lives Matter, and uh, that has been a huge focus and appropriately so. So here with our little podcast, you know, we put the call out for these questions on writing and we got one. Um, and like, I get it. You know, right now the world is on fire. It's it's not the time when people are thinking about, gee, you know, how do I how do I write a character or whatever? <laughs> like, I get right. that, you know. Um, but also the one question we got was from a white writer wanting to know how to write characters of color and how to bring diversity into her writing. And I thought, all right, you know on point. Let's talk about this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's good. And that's what the whole episode now is going to discuss, because that is not a small topic. Um, So I'd like to thank this, uh, this person who sent this in. Uh, We're not going to identify her because I didn't get her permission to identify her before we start recording. So we're just going to move on through. But what she said was, What advice do you have for writing characters who have different lived experiences than I do? I am a cishet, white, able-bodied, middle-class woman, but of course I don't want to write about people who are just like me. I want the characters in my stories to have diverse voices and reflect different backgrounds. This is actually something I've struggled with for years. It makes me question whether or not I should even write at all and the place of my voice. 
I am petrified of contributing to stereotypes or tokenization, or that the good old terroir will seep into my work in damaging ways that I don't even fully realize. But at the end of the day, I cannot help that I am a storyteller. So I'm curious, how have you gone about writing marginalized folks? Do you have any resources to which I could refer, or could you share your favorite examples of fully formed, diverse casts of characters? Um, all right. So first of all, uh, this is going to be a long answer, so everybody should settle in. <laughs> Um, and I would like to thank the person who sent this to us for asking it. Um, mm -hmm. These are really hard questions to reckon with, and there are no simple answers. And the fact that you are willing to do that reckoning is a good thing. I mean, that's where we all start. Uh, but it's a long process, and we've all got to kind of strap in and start reckoning with it. Um, but before I get started, of course, I would like to acknowledge that I'm white. Um, I don't know the answer to this question um you know the question came up like what have i done in mm -hmm. my writing and i did all my writing before i really knew what i was doing um i've had you know diverse uh characters before that i've written and i just always wrote them as people you know um and in one of my books i have a black trans woman and she was just her to me. <laughs> like, I didn't honestly really think about it that much. Uh, but because of a lot of things um, that I didn't realize I was doing, I mean, in my books, I think I have some of that cultural poison. I have some of that terroir in my books, um, especially because I was coming from such a place of, you know, unawareness when I wrote them. Um, so uh, so any terroir that's in my books, and I've been going through them recently and seeing it, and it is highly uncomfortable to know that I contributed to that, um, for which I am I am very sorry and taking a good look at myself before I start, you know, like writing again in the fictional space. Um, so that's where I am. And unfortunately, I, I can't say, oh, I've done it. Look at what I've done. I'm such a great example because I am not in this arena. Um, so I just wanted to, to kind of put that out there. Um, but, uh, you know, I am going to share what I do know um and then we are going to refer to people who know way more than we do yes yep so we're gonna kind of dive into Lonnie's reflection which is very helpful because you've been writing for a long time mm -hmm. yeah. right and so being able to look back at that writing and look at your own perspective and process um I think is is incredibly helpful you know mm -hmm. in, a, in a really kind of good form of, of self-reflection. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're going to cite Black authors and authors of color on this topic, um, select passages from them to give you, with citations, of course. Of course. And link to them in the show notes. <laughs> I know. Kelly loves citing. I do love it and so much. it's so wonderful. I love your enthusiasm <laughs> for citing. And citing is the moral and appropriate thing to do also. So, I mean, it's not just that we love it, but it's that it's the right thing to do. So, <laughs> um, All right. So um, I'm not going to start with what I don't know. I'm going to pass that on to people who know more than me. But I will start with what I do know. Um, and so, uh, questioner, if you are out there, and I hope that you are, I am not speaking like to you specifically. I'm speaking to all white writers who are working with that. Um, and uh, I'm just going to start from the beginning for anyone listening to this, that no matter where any of us are in our anti-racism work, this can be hopefully of some value. Um, so that said, I know that for those of us who are early in our anti-racism work, we need to focus on learning and not on action. Um, and I mean, definitely, you know, donate, protest, support, raise up diverse voices. That action is fine. But before we speak or take action on our own, we need to pause, we need to breathe, and we need to listen. Um, and this is the only circumstance in which you are ever going to hear this advice from me. But right now, in this one space, don't think critically. Okay? Listen. Don't bring in the yeah buts or, ah, oh, this doesn't sit right with me, right? Um, Aristotle once said, and actually didn't say because this is a misquote of what he actually said, and Aristotle's an asshole. We'll, we'll address that in just a minute. Uh, but the, the phrase that has come out into the popular culture and attributed to Aristotle is that it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Um, and while we do reference Aristotle, I would like to pass the mic over to uh, Dr. Kelly Jones to give us some, I don't know, context 
on that? <laughs> oh, I do love a lecture entitled Why We Should Not, in fact, listen to Aristotle. Yes. Um the the actual quote now, the the problem here is it's translated from the mm-hmm. Greek, which yes. is not a, a simple and clean translation. And then mm-hmm. the quote gets simplified so that it does make sense, mm-hmm. you know, but the actual quote is it is right that we ask people to accept each of the things which are said in the same way, for it is the mark of an educated person to search for the same kind of clarity in each topic to the extent that of the nature of the matter accepts it. So in other words, if you're reading a mathematical proof, you read it through a mathematical lens. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to an, or, you know, an orator, you don't listen to the speech as a mathematical proof. Right. Mm -hmm, right. Um, So but then you also don't necessarily accept it as true. But I I actually like the the misquote better for what it is intended, (laughs) you know, to do. Right. My Mm -hmm. problem is is Aristotle. Um, And while I have a huge problem with Aristotle's worldview, I have a bigger problem with the way that that he is revered. In, in a lot of context and the way that his work is taught, um, because I cannot argue with the fact that Aristotle contributed a lot to human knowledge and philosophy and science. But y'all, he viewed women as deficient compared to men down to like testing the heat of blood and determining that men were better creatures, um, referring to women as monstrous not considering them as potential citizens in society. Aristotle believed that some people not only deserved to be enslaved, but that a natural slave was a personality trait or a natural aspect of society. And when I pushed back on some of these ideas as a younger student, I was taught, well, Aristotle was a product of his culture, and that's just the way it was. Mm -hmm. So while he was smart, he was far from woke. Um, But I have a huge problem with the continuation of, okay, but here are the good ideas. And that's just the way culture was. So let's just Mm -hmm. keep teaching the good ideas. Because how am I supposed to learn from the ideas of a man who believed I was less than fully human? Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Aristotle was a product of his culture, but he was exceptionally intelligent and therefore capable of thinking beyond the norms of that culture. Mm -hmm. He chose what he wanted to believe. And so for me, he can fuck right off. And as (laughs) I wish I had the applause button, (laughs) it could be like, well, as a society, right, as Mm -hmm. a school, as a culture, as a society, when we continue to hold up and teach these ideas as excellent, we in turn hold up and teach patriarchy and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I don't care how smart he was true wisdom cannot be found from a person who sees others as less than fully human and so as far as i'm concerned aristotle can take several seats and Mm -hmm. i'm enraged by the standard pedagogy in teaching aristotle and plato and socrates because they're often taught as the only or the ideal voice of higher philosophy Mm -hmm. and so the narrative right from a story perspective the narrative of philosophy yes. becomes a story of white male supremacy. Yes. And so if we want to to teach the ideas, we need to teach them in context with what these people actually believed about their fellow humans mm-hmm. and then critique that context actively and then expand that curriculum with voices that aren't white and male. So I, well, I, I yes. people tease me all the time. Like, if you want to piss me off, like back me in a corner and make me talk about Plato's cave. Um <laughs> I just get so freaking sick of it because the story of philosophy, by and large, are these three dudes. And they were not great people. They were not good people. uh, And they're not the kind of people I want to learn from. Right. You know, so, Mm -hmm. yeah. But I I do. And I think it's interesting in doing this podcast that I can see that as a social story. Right. And, And we... In the way that it gets taught, all of those terrible supremacist beliefs get passed down as story. And it's, you know, it's disgusting and disheartening. And story has power. And that's the thing is that when we tell these stories, stories are able to kind of get inside of us the way that nothing else is. And it 
teaches us what is true and what is right. And when you look at this, when you're talking about the narrative of philosophy, right, you know, there are these things that happen, there are these facts of things that people said and things that people did, right. But when we take the stuff um, that we want to look at, and, and without looking at it in full context, we are creating then that narrative, right, it is the recounted uh, yep. story, which is then in the recounting of necessity edited. And when we edit that story, we decide what that narrative is, and we leave out the entire context of it. And that makes that very complicated. So first of all, I'm glad that we've bastardized his quote, because I actually, um, I like the thing that he didn't say better than the thing that he yeah, actually said. Me too. Um, it is important to entertain thoughts before accepting or rejecting them out of hand because they make us uncomfortable or challenge us in ways that we don't like. Um, we need to get comfortable with inviting that challenge. Um, we all have beliefs that desperately need to be challenged, especially because some of them are not actually our beliefs. They were installed in us like an operating system. We have a lot of bad, if you want to be like computer minded about it, we got a lot of bad fucking code going mm -hmm. on in here. And that is affecting everything that runs on that operating system. If you want to think of it like that, it's a metaphor, you know, whatever. So that's settled. Let's go back to our listening discussion, which is where we were, um, is that this is the only time I'm ever going to say listen without jumping into that critical space, right? Jumping into that, how is this wrong, right? So listen without critical thought. And here's why in this one specific application, we need to do that. Because for those of us who live in America, definitely, and probably for anyone living in other white majority culture, we have been trained to default to yeah, but when hearing complaints about racism and about other forms of, you know, of um, bigotry and prejudice and discrimination. But racism, I think, especially is especially hot uh, in the way that we do this. Um, we need to break that way of thinking. Again, it's code installed in the cultural operating system, and it is designed with one job, and that is to protect white supremacy. Um, so we have to resist it. And we do that by allowing other code in that can combat it. And that takes time. So we've got to accept that our brains need time to retrain before we can write, you know, anything that we don't want to contribute to more of that bad code, more of that cultural damage. Um, because here's the thing, we can write as white writers, again, an all white book, and we can still do damage. So it's not you have to think that it's not just about writing diverse characters. It's writing all of your characters from a perspective that acknowledges all of these things, that acknowledges these realities without accepting them as truth. And that's not to say that you should be colorblind in your writing because you should not. Colorblind erases identity and it erases experience. And that is not the answer. Um, but even if you write an all white book, that too is harmful. So it's, it's taking this idea of adding more diverse characters and even pulling it back to thinking in more diverse or, or thinking in ways that acknowledge everything that's going on. Um, and that is something that you will need to think about with regard to all of your characters, not just the ones that are different from you. And this comes down basically to the concept of terroir, which of course the, the original questioner did reference. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, although if you've listened to me more than in one episode, because I talk about this all the time to the point where people complain that I'm constantly defining terroir, but I think it's important. <laughs> um, terroir comes from the French winemaking concept. What's in the ground gets in the grapes, gets in the wine. And what's in the culture gets in the writers, gets in our stories, okay? So you can pass this through in your storytelling without intending to and do damage. Um, so those are things that we need to really be aware of. So we have this stuff in us, right? And we don't even know some of it's even there. We're not even aware of it. So writing characters of color is down the line from where we are. First, we have to learn how to suck the poison out of our individual perspectives. Um, and, you know, again, let me acknowledge, as I say this, I wrote 12 books, right? with a lot of terroir in them. There's poison in every single one. And I'm very, very sorry for it. I'm working on myself. So I just want to say I am in the soup with everybody else. So I am talking about what I know about the approach and where to get started. And that's about what I know. And then we're going to move to people who know a lot more. Um, so there's work to do, right? We've talked about that. We start by listening. And we mm -hmm. talked about that. Uh, while we are listening, 
one of the best things you can do to kind of combat that code is buy books by non-white authors and non-straight, non-cis, people with disabilities, any author who is not part of the, and it makes me a little sick as I say this, and I'm putting this in super air quotes, default identities, right? Which is white, male, cis, het, able-bodied, all of those things, right? There are a lot of quote unquote default identities that we engage with. Mm -hmm. um, so remember that our stories are powerful, that they get inside of us. That's how so many people who are otherwise decent people end up engaging with and supporting systemic racism. So stop reading quote unquote default identity authors for a while. Bring anti-racism into your joy because if you love stories, that's awesome. Love some new ones. Use your joy as a power to rewrite the racism that is encoded in our cultural operating system. That is one of the most joyful ways I can think of to do some of this work. And, and bringing joy into your anti-racism is super important because every bit of joy that you can do, that you can bring this into, will fuel your ability to, to keep working on it and to keep doing good as much as you can, you know. Um, and, you know, on top of that, until reparations are something that we are willing to actually have a serious conversation about, we're giving something back to people who have had way too much taken away. We're honoring yeah. their perspective and we're giving them a little money. Right. Well, and I think it's important to say when when we say support their work, we mean pay for the pay work. Pay for their work. Yes, absolutely. So um, and that's that's a delight. You know, it's a delight. Yeah. Buy art by Black Arthur, authors. Uh, follow, you know, YouTube creators. I love baking. And I have a bunch of, like, Black artists on YouTube who bake and do recipes and direct and uh, decorate cakes and all of that. So, um, so just find those opportunities in your joy. That'll give you a lot more energy. And bringing anti-racism into your joy. Anti-racism doesn't have to be you know, something that is always difficult. It should be difficult. It should be uncomfortable. But the more you bring your joy into it, the more you think of it as an act of love and support and appreciation, um, the more energy you're going to have for it. And I think that that's a good thing. And, and, and appreciating and loving artists of color, Black artists, Indigenous artists, um, you know, from every walk of life, I think that that is, um, is a beneficial way to, to go a little farther in your anti-racism work. So, but let's say that you've, you're a little farther, you feel like you've weeded out a lot of the presumptions, you're able to quickly and ably identify racism around you, you're able to speak out about it. Uh, you don't have to be comfortable speaking about it. I don't think we should ever be comfortable, but you can at least speak about it. Um, you already engage with non-default identity. And every time I say default identity, it makes me feel sick, but it's the reality think, of what's yeah, been and, in and, our... and maybe like a privileged identity privileged kind of means identity. the same thing. But we, yeah. I mean, it's gross. But it's gross, it is gross. But we do. This is what we yeah. do. We default mm -hmm. to white. We default to a patriarchal perspective. We default to that. And I feel like... yeah. It's gross, but I'm acknowledging the grossness. So I'm just, I just, please, every time I say that, understand that I do not approve. I do not approve. Um, <laughs> so that's when you turn to black writers and writers of color for guidance. And when I say this, I mean, you turn to the black writers and writers of color who have already written and published about it. We do not go to our black friends and ask them to tell us what to do, okay? Um, we don't wanna drain anybody's energy. Um, and there are a lot of people who have already gifted us with their intellectual and emotional labor. And we honor that by going to the things that already exist out there for us as resources. So we're turning now in this conversation to black writers and writers of color. And I'm going to hand that over to Dr. Kelly Jones because we have citations and I know that makes her sweet little heart go pitter pat. I love it. I love the <laughs> citations. Um, and sometimes the best way to answer a question, you know, how do you write characters of color if you're white is, is to say, read these things. Yeah. Right. Because the, the best way to learn, and I, if you're ever in one of my graduate classes, <laughs> You will get sick of me saying this, but um, we go to the primary source. Yes. You don't go to a secondary source. Mm -hmm. So if you want to learn about the black experience in America, you don't go to a white writer who is writing about the black experience in yes. America. We need mm -hmm. to go directly to the source. Yes. Um, and as Lonnie said, not to impose emotional labor by asking someone to do the work for you, mm -hmm. but by finding and sharing the people that have already been willing to do this work. 
And very you generously know. have given up their time and their energy already. Like you honor what they've done by doing that, you know, yes. by, by looking to the things that they have already put out there. Yes. Um, okay. So we have a list of sources here. We're going to do some excerpts, mm -hmm. um, which will be very, very, very fun. Yes. So here we go. So source one, seven casually racist things that white authors do by Maya Nunnally. And we will put the link from Book Riot in the show notes. Their Twitter handle is at literally Maya, M-Y-A. And from bookriot.com, we have a quote here. I can't tell you the joy that came to me when I first read N.K. Jeminson's The Fifth Season. My little nerd heart had an epiphany. Here was an eloquent, sweeping fantasy novel. And at the forefront were characters like me, girls with my hair, boys with my skin, people without binary genders at all. It was life changing. Um, and, I, and, and with that, I just have to say, if you haven't read N.K. Jemison and you're not following them on social media, you are missing out. Mm -hmm. um that the the fifth season that whole series is incredible and some of the best fantasy literature that i have ever read in my life and i cannot recommend it highly enough yeah i've actually got nk jemison on my kindle uh right now and so uh so nk jemison i've heard just fantastic things about but i do want to add a little context that in this um in this article maya nunnally is uh saying that you know in, including characters of color in your stories is what is what they're asking us to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's good. But we note that N.K. Jemison is a black author, and so was able to do this, uh, you know, appropriately, and is a great person to read. Not just um, what they have uh, they have written in their books, but also I've I've found some things online um, by them, which has been really really great. Um, so I just want to make that little notation that while um, we are ex we are allowing my. <laughs> That while the author is allowing us to experience their joy at this, um, we also need to to recognize that that's it's not like oh well they said that they want us to do this you know uh, right. they want you to do it after you've done the work right 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 absolutely um, okay next article is white as the default by Marissa Ray Sebastian at Marissa Ray one on Twitter. And again, we will put all of these handles and links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, so the excerpt from this says, a large number of the protagonists I had learned to love, both contemporary and classical, had one thing that tied them together. They were white. I had consumed hundreds of books, encountered thousands of characters, and a large majority of those that were human or humanoid were white or white-coated. Characters of color were lacking, and many of my favorite series were guilty of having all white characters or one or two token people of color. Lack of diversity isn't a trend specific to literature. We see it all the time in the other forms of media we consume. The idea that literary characters, even when they are often open for a bit of interpretation, are white a default contributes to this lack of representation for readers that are people of color. I realized that white, unless described otherwise, had become an internalized idea I had despite the fact that I was a little black girl growing up within African-American and Afro-Caribbean cultures. Lack of representation on the page led me to believe that people that looked like me did not really exist in the world's authors built. Even characters that could exist as any race with no major change to the story were white. Yeah, I think that's a really great perspective. You Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. You know, it's it's not exactly the same topic, but it is interesting um, going back to some of the reflection you were sharing mm -hmm. as a writer. Uh, I remember reading The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin in a gender studies class. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's science fiction um, and it takes place on a planet where gender is supposed to not exist or mm -hmm. gender can change. Like the opening line of the book is the king was pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, but if you Everything was actually coded male, except yes. for the moment that that would shift. And years and years later, in an interview, Le Guin acknowledged that she said, you know, I did not even realize that mm -hmm. that was what I was doing. Um, yeah. And it was it was not on purpose. And it and yeah. reading back over it. Yeah, they all sound male. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I, I do think it's it's just so important to think what is that default, whether yeah. you're intending it or not. Um, so. Okay, next one. How to write characters of color as a white author. No thanks. 
by Benjamin Shredanka at Benjamin S. Um, and again, we'll put all correct spellings and links in the show notes. Um, the excerpt here says, it's not that white authors should never write characters of color, period. But if you have to pester people of color for praise and attention, if you refuse to ever read authors of color, if you demand free research and free resources and never actually follow up on doing your own reading, if you aren't humble enough to recognize that you have a lot to learn and that people of color will always know better than you, if the only thing you can think of is that Pakistani girls are defined by honor killings and Latino men defined by being domestic abusers and black people defined by inner city experience and Chinese women defined by foot binding, if you don't understand why some stories are not yours to tell, don't bother. You're not doing anything good and you're not bringing anything new and self-respecting people of color have no reason to read your fourth rate racist sludge. Yeah, that's a powerful statement. Yeah. And I think it's well spoken. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, next, don't dip your pen in someone else's blood, writers and the other by Kitta Wall from the Irish Times. Our excerpt here reads... The dictionary definition is this. Cultural appropriation is the adoption of elements of a minority culture by members of the dominant culture. It is distinguished from equal cultural exchange due to the presence of a colonial element and imbalance of power. There's a couple of words there that might give us a clue as to why it's become a thing, a talking point, not just in literature, but in dance and music and dress and film. Those words are minority, dominant and imbalance. So in one culture, the dominant one uses stuff that belongs to a minority culture. That minority culture can feel offended, a sense of loss, or injustice. Cultural appropriation, I think, is uh, something definitely to think about. And we had a uh, situation not too long ago, although when I looked it up, I thought that was last year, right? And it was February. Um, American Dirt by Janine mm -hmm. Cummins. Um, and I think that uh, going and doing some research on what happened there and the responses that people had to it can give you a little bit more context into how cultural appropriation can happen when white authors decide that there are certain stories that they should tell that they have the right to tell yes absolutely okay so our last recommendation is an article titled should white authors write characters of color by adiba jagadar at adiba underscore j and here's the excerpt white authors often lack the cultural knowledge that is required to write certain characters more than that, they lack the drive to actually accumulate this kind of knowledge, to go out and do the kind of research that is required of them. Too many white writers that I'm acquainted with feel entitled to write about characters of color without actually understanding their cultural or racial backgrounds. It's probably one of the reasons why writers often write racially ambiguous characters that can't be traced back to a particular culture or race, but doesn't necessarily fall into the category of white characters. It's a way to avoid committing to any research or to understanding people of color and their relationship to racial and cultural backgrounds. Yeah. So what we just did there was we went on Google, <laughs> you know, um, we started asking questions and we did a Google search. Um, so be careful when when reading articles to take a look at who wrote them, because I think who wrote them is very, very important. Um, but the big thing is, is that it, this is a time to listen, to deeply, deeply listen, like you can hear a pin drop listen. And it is hard. And I, as I talk throughout this entire episode of How Story Works, I am painfully aware that this is the moment for me to shut up. But I feel like having this conversation because I do have this platform, because I want to raise these voices, because I don't want to ask somebody to come in here and do their emotional labor that they've already done that's out there for me to, to you know, gratefully acknowledge and, and use to be better at this. Um, that, that means that I have to be speaking, but I do realize the irony of saying, listen, while I talk for an hour. Like, I yeah. get it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, so do the homework, do the research, do your best, give what you've got and don't give up. And before we move on and close out the show, I do want to say that there is um, there are services available for sensitivity readers. Um, these are people out there who you can hire to read what you've written and give you advice. All right. And this is OK because they have offered themselves as a resource because you will be paying them for their labor. So once you've done the research and you've written your work, this is not only acceptable and appropriate, but I think necessary 
to, to hire a sensitivity reader who has offered themselves for that job. And then listen. And listen. Right? And it's, listen to what they say. Listen yes. to what they say. <laughs> yes. Listen to what they say. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's part of this, too, is willing to be wrong. Yeah. Willing to realize that you that you don't understand something, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's true. Anything that you want to learn, any new skill set yep. or perspective or idea that you want to learn, you first have to start with what you don't know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then be willing to unlearn some yes. things that that have become kind of built in and comfortable for yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and, and be willing to, to make yourself uncomfortable because any, any new learning requires new synapses firing and new neural pathways in the brain. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to be a little uncomfortable, but the, the beauty and magic of the human brain is that it is, it's plastic. You know, yeah. the whole thing is plasticity and change is possible at any age for all of us. Um, and there are so many wonderful people willing to teach and willing to share their perspective. There's so many wonderful writers that have shared their stories and their perspective. Mm-hmm. The work is out there. Yeah. And all you have to do is listen, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and be willing to take that in. Um, so and it can be like a truly beautiful thing to be given that gift of a perspective that you could never get on your own. Yes, absolutely. And it's a very generous thing for uh, people to share with us. And so I would like to extend my incredible gratitude to all of these writers we've talked about today and everybody else out there who is doing that work and, and helping all of us. So yes. um, we, ha- we have a lot of gratitude for that. Um, so shifting a bit. <laughs> We're going to close out this discussion uh, with love what you love. So Kelly Jones, what have you been loving lately? So I dipped into another show that had been recommended to me many, many times mm-hmm. um, that I had not watched uh, yes. how to get away with murder. Mm-hmm. And can I just say Viola Davis is so incredible. I will watch if she wants to read the yellow pages on camera. I'm there <laughs> She's for fantastic. that. I, yes. I just I, I don't have words. Oh my god! For how that scene incredible! Where she takes off her makeup in makeup. the first season. Oh, oh my, my god. god! She's so incredible. Um, and 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 I love such this fantastic example of of a character who may not necessarily be likable all the oh, time, yeah. Yeah. but is real and and you, you know, respect her. Like, oh my god! You respect yes. that woman. She Absolutely. is tough. Yeah. Um, so I have just really enjoyed it. It, it oh, has been awesome. a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And I, I, I just keep waiting for what are they going to do next? And what is the next? Yeah, it is. It is one of those shows, too. Yeah. It is like a ride. You know, yeah. you you do not know what is going to happen. And when it happens, you're going to be like, oh, my God. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. great. It's crazy. What, what about you? What are you loving lately? Um, I have been playing a game. Um, oh. which has been really fun. It is a game called Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. Um, and it is beautiful and haunting and, um, and and a new kind of experience. It's one of those things that like, you have to play it with headphones on because it is a truly immersive experience. Mm. The, the visual beauty of this game is incredible. Um, it is a, kind of a deep mythology, this woman that goes basically into hell to uh to put the soul of her you know um her fiance um at ease um and i'm still i'm still early in it because i can't get past the first boss fight because i'm terrible (laughs) at video games (laughs) but um but what i found really interesting is it opens up with this statement saying that this this story reflects the experiences of people with mental illness, you know, specifically mm. schizophrenia. Uh, so you are living and experiencing this character who who you're not sure. You're never really sure what's going on or what reality is, you know, mm. um, which is such an interesting experience. And um, and I think a highly empathetic experience. And, mm. uh, you know, I did some reading on the game developers and they employed people with these experiences experiences people with schizophrenia people people with uh, you know who have experienced mental illness um in in this way in the ways that that like mess with your sense of reality um Mm -hmm. and i i find it it's it's beautiful it's heartbreaking it's powerful 
Um, I still can't get through the boss fight. I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure out how to do that. <laughs> I may. I have a friend who has offered to play it for me, and I may actually take him up on that um, because I can't. I'm just, I just die over and over and over <laughs> and over again. Um, I will say, however, that uh, before anybody goes out and, and buys it, uh, watch some videos first. It is um, it is. It can be disturbing and upsetting. Mm. Um, there are there are points in it where it has triggered a little bit of, of some traumas that I've experienced. Um, so I just want to say that it is, it is a video game that you go into carefully and with thought. But the experience of it is unbelievably beautiful. And I am... I'm really enjoying it. I will not say that it's a fun laugh riot of an experience, mm. but it mm-hmm. is definitely a deeply emotional and thoughtful experience and a beautiful, beautifully constructed game. Well, that's fantastic. It's amazing to me what they can do uh, yeah. with video games now. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah, it's just it's it's really incredible. Um, very cool. All right. Well, awesome. Um, I have a lot of reading to do. Yes, I am so super I. excited. I am mm-hmm. going through an experiment of decolonizing my bookshelf. Me too. Um, which is in- yes. uncomfortable in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but I am also having a very good time adding mm-hmm. new books to the yes. collection. Um, so I, I look forward to, to some really good reading um, and mm-hmm. to season two of How Story Works. Yes. So to join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Danrich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. HowStoryWorks and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to do our research. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our June producers, Abigail, Alice, Erica, Rose, Jonathan, Kristen, Sarah, and Shelley. And this week's special message for our power producers, bring your anti-racism into your joy. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a How Story Works producer. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or cite philosophers who aren't Aristotle. (laughs) We'll be back in a little while after a a hiatus while we develop season two of How Story Works, conversations where we will talk about conflict. Until then, the very best way to write distinctive characters is to see them as fully human.